This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. My name is Rich Bradbury, and this, of course, is Matt Splained and more weird science from the weird dude uh, on Matt Splained this week. What are we diving into this week, Mr. Matt Splained, Matthew? Hey, Rich. Um, well, I was going to do, uh, you know, a, a thematic episode, uh, you know, something about something today, um, because there's loads of stuff to talk about. I mean, there's some really cool stuff about clean energy coming out, uh, as well as developments in the way that we examine history. So there's this kind of uh, emergence of forensic sciences in the realm of history that's really interesting to, to look at. And as well, you know, there's a lot around uh, deep fakes and uh, mm-hmm. a lot of this this kind of stuff. Um, but then I saw uh, one particular story, the one we're about to talk about, and I realized there was just no choice. We've got to do a weird science episode this week. I'm a bit worried because you sound as excited as uh, Dr. Frankenstein, and this sounds <laughs> like it's going to be something horrific. Well, remember a couple of weeks ago, we had a story about uh, a bionic leg. Mm. Uh, We talked about this robot that had organic muscle tissue that was grown from, I think it was mouse cells or something like that. And, uh, uh, you know, how incredible I thought that was. It could walk and it could turn, I mean, admittedly, very, very slowly. Um, But how does the idea of cyborg locusts sound to you? It, it, it sounds like something uh, I've encountered in a movie, but also sounds incredibly terrifying. Well, I mean, if you're worrying about an army of, you know, uh, centrally controlled flesh-eating locusts, um, don't worry. Uh, I am actually working on that, but I've got so many other projects on the go at the moment that it's on a, a bit of a back burner for me. <laughs> Thankfully. Um, yeah, um, but this actually relates to the locusts' keen sense of smell. So mm. scientists have been trying to harness this, this ability that they have, uh, their olfactory senses, by implanting electrodes in their brains, which will enable them to detect certain chemicals. Uh, Basically, it creates a a map of their neural responses to particular chemicals that can then be used to identify or decode those those signatures in the things that are smelled. Mm. Um, If you're wondering sort of what kind of use this might have, well, one of the purposes is to create a, a bomb-sniffing machine to, to have locusts, or more accurately, a, a machine with a, a locust-like brain, uh, to have these locusts able to sniff and divine materials that could be hazardous or a threat, say, in you know ports or airports or yeah. those kind of locations. Um, but one of the, the drawbacks to doing this kind of tests in the past has been basically human and technological error because it's very hard to put an electrode in exactly the same place in the brain of each particular locust. So the signals recorded tend to vary from insect to insect. Mm. And that, you know, just, you know, those tiny misalignments in, in location can be enough 
to misidentify a smell. Um, and, you know, we've all misidentified smells. Uh, and uh, apologies to, to my wife on this one. Uh, that smell of gas was indeed a gas leak and not my neighbours eating durian. <laughs> I think I may well have encountered that um, misidentification as well. Uh, but somehow then turning locusts into cyborgs uh, is... It's going to make us safer? I know, it's a conundrum, isn't it? Because the yeah. idea of cyborg locus is, as you said, quite quite terrifying. Um, but, you know, what would be worse, uh, a naturally occurring plague of locusts or one that has been conjured up by me on a smartphone app? Well, I mean, the smartphone app is okay. Uh, that I can deal with. What, even though it's been conjured up by me? Yeah. I mean, I, I, sometimes you're more bark than bite, so I'm okay with that. Okay, that's true. Um, oh, I'm a bit disappointed now. Um, anyway, um, so turning them into to cyborgs um, by injecting their brains with nanoparticles, it turns out, makes uh, this this odor identification more reliable. It gets rid of that that um, those problems that they had putting the electrodes in the in the brains. Right. So scientists at uh, Washington University in St. Louis have developed a method, um, as I said, using nanoparticles that can then be heated with infrared light. So when these particles are injected into the locust's brain and then illuminated with a laser, they amplify the neural activity in response to the smells, which significantly improves the accuracy of that odor detection. Can I just uh, interrupt you a second? Just let me yeah, briefly interrupt. So we're talking about locusts injected with nanoparticles, then illuminating these nanoparticles with the laser. Yeah, what's your I'm problem? I'm following along so far, right? Yeah, what's your problem? Nothing? Okay. I just wanted to make sure that we're all on the same path. That's all right. Folks just listening at home, just follow this path so with me. Basically, this, uh, this creates a photothermal effect, and this increases the neural activity in the locus uh, relating to the odour. So basically, you're, as I said, you're amplifying um, that signal, which makes it much easier to differentiate or distinguish between uh, different chemicals. Uh-huh. Uh, they even loaded those nanoparticles with a neurotransmitter called uh, octopamine, um, and that helped to um, boost this this smell discrimination even further. So beyond bomb detection, what other purposes might there be for these super crickets? Well, they think the, the same techniques could be used not just to create um, odour-sniffing robots, but to use that method of heating nanoparticles for medical treatments that require very specific localised heating. Ah. So you could, you could implant these in people or animals that, that needed treatment uh, and then use that same laser to, to uh-huh. heat up and to, to kind of speed up the, the healing, um, which means that uh, one day... Uh-huh. You could be a cyborg too, and I'll be able to control you from my app. <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, no, 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 no. Okay, so uh, can we move on? What, what what have we got next? Let's move okay. away from uh, cy- psychos, cybotic, sniffing, yeah. robot, locust things, please. No, no, yes. Um, 
get rid of the cyborg nonsense, head into the AI nonsense. Uh, so some chat GPT users this week have reported the machine output in Goldigook. Uh, OpenAI acknowledged the issue, but I think it had been resolved by the time that I got around to testing it. Again, as with mm. all of these things related to AI, they generally have no idea why, what it was. Um, it probably wasn't uh, related to the, the features that the company announced last week, um, which was that the machine is now gaining a memory. Now, one of the big frustrations that a lot of people have with AI is the Groundhog Day effect. Yeah. Uh, the fact that you spend ages giving it detailed instructions it churns something out for you and then it promptly forgets them uh, yeah. the next time you go back and ask it to, to do something, um, which is one of the reasons that, you know, OpenAI and other companies with these kind of chat-based uh, AI products let you train your own models with given parameters so that you don't have to do this every single time you, you mm. log back in. But it would be much easier if the model could just remember stuff about you and the tasks and the commands that you give it, right? Yeah, absolutely, for sure. But it would also be much more easier if Sam Altman and OpenAI would give me a search function within the stuff well, that I've put in. The chances are that's going to be happening, and that's something related to this memory as well, because mm. uh, as we'll we'll talk about, I think, in a future episode, we're getting into the area where um, recommendations are something that are being baked into the model. Mm. So you see a lot of the, the the chatbots that are being sold in the app store, or not, or, or not necessarily being sold, but are available in the, the kind of chat GPT app store. They, they are based on preferences and recommendation engines from mm -hmm. flights, travel, or, or whatever. Um, now, in terms of the actual memory component, this isn't a, a general update yet. Uh, it's going out to uh, select users, according to uh, the report I read in The Verge, and I've checked my account. I'm not one of the select users, Ooh. but then I'm generally not, uh, probably because I'm one of those problem users who, who doesn't use it for a few days and then deluges it all at once and causes like, you know, I'm a single human traffic spike. Um, but uh, this is essentially the idea that you can explicitly feed the bot the information that you want it to know about you. Um, that, for example, you think sweet corn and eggs are evil because they are, and that puce is your favorite color because it is. Um, and of course, that cats are superior to humans, which explains why you have no children. Hmm. Um, or you can... Uh, let the bot gradually learn all this information about you through your prompts and the way that they that you use it so that it preserves facts about your your likely usage as well as you know your kind of behavior in terms of what you request of it i mean the behavioral part is, is kind of obvious but it's annoying to put the same set of instructions into that box time after time but how does retaining information about you uh, enhance the user experience? Well, again, as you were saying about search, as we see the platforms developing, they're becoming much more like browsers. Yeah. As I said before, there are travel recommendations, uh, travel recommendation bots in the store. Um, 
all sorts of stuff where the machine's answers are enhanced by knowing things about you. So they're able to give you much more tailored responses. So the idea is that by letting the machine start to gather that information, you can create that more personalized experience that you're used to from um, from social media and search. Yeah, exactly. It, it sounds very familiar, just exactly the same kind of approach and data harvesting model that we hear from social media. Yeah, and that, that privacy issue is where we kind of get into the, the weeds. Um, yeah. As I, I said, this isn't sort of part of my model of the bot yet. Uh, and when I asked it what it knows about me, it gave me, you know, that boilerplate response about how the service is based around privacy and it doesn't mm. retain information about users. Uh, so as far as I can gather, there's no suggestion that OpenAI will try to monetize your data in the way that social media sites do by selling it to third parties and data brokers but they will use it as training data for the llm LLM, um so as i said we're back in that murky world of intellectual property especially when it comes to those all-important enterprise clients now you can turn this functionality off and you can also ask the model to forget certain things that it knows about you um for example i should never have said that my favorite color is puce because it's not a color um but i imagine um but i imagine doing that is largely irrelevant if that information has already been sent into you know the central core into the borg yeah. Yeah. Uh, it might not appear to remember that you think that all taylor swift fans are three-eyed purple-faced mouth breathers <gasps> but you know, it, it may already, you know, it might not show up in the preferences it gives you as tailored recommendations. But as I said, that may have been sent into the heart of the LLM, and that may already be informing the development of the next generation of the machine. I don't think that about Taylor Swift fans. Anyway, it was just a an extreme example. That's a quick backpedal there, um, <laughs> but fair enough. But how do we, you know, how do we achieve that balance? I, I, enough personalization to be useful, while ensuring that there's no privacy intrusion. Well, genuinely, your guess is as good as mine. You know, when we talk about um, social media, it's quite simple for the most part. It's a free service. And you're engaging in a trade. You're trading privacy and data for the service. That's yeah. the fee that you give to the company. Uh, services like ChatGPT are generally built more around paid subscriptions uh, and, of course, enterprise use, where there is a greater demand for both privacy and secrecy. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, you know, as you alluded to, uh, these services have you know, they've got very limited utility without some element of personalization. Like you said, you want it to have that kind of searchability where it needs to know certain things about you. And the more we integrate these tools as assistants, advisors, you know, even mentors in in some cases, the more we're going to bounce off these kind of practical and ethical walls. So, you know, my answer is that there's no one solution as advocated by a single purpose, a single person rather, there needs to be a consensus from users. Mm. And in this case, you know, when there's a preponderance of paying users, 
it might actually be relatively quick and clean to resolve because mm. the idea is if you're paying for something and it's not offering you the services or the terms and conditions that you want, you simply hop to another service yeah. that is offering yeah. the level of service and, and whatever you're looking for. But as we know, that the market rarely corrects in that way. So it is possible that that won't work and we have to go the slower route of building boringly public consensus where mm. you know the davids and the goliaths have to then fight it out in the public realm <sighs> the zuckerbergs and the musks of the ai world uh, okay while you're lining up your goliaths then um what are we going to end part one with uh more ai but uh, i guess a more fun one or at least fun, fun adjacent oh okay <laughs> Okay. Um, so some of you may have seen the recent images of text-to-video creation from mm. OpenAI. Yeah. Um, now, it's not open to the public yet. Only a handful of content creators have been given access to the tool, which is a generative video model called Sora. Sora means sky in Japanese, so... Apologies for my pronunciation. Uh, the model takes short text descriptions and it turns them into high-res videos of up to a minute in length. Now, the video that I think most people have seen is of a Japanese couple who are holding hands as they walk through a snowstorm on an, on an urban street. That seems to be the, the sort mm. of most re, re-exed or um, sh- you know, publicly shared post. And the video is incredibly detailed. Uh, It's the kind of thing that you might find, maybe not in the latest game, but, you know, in something with a a fairly good sort of generative and and fairly good physics engine. And it is a huge step forward for generating this kind of instant video content. Mm. I mean, you know, I know that you've done quite a lot of this. You've, you've, played yeah. with sort of text and video before what yeah what, what's your kind of response i, I saw one video of um it was a a guy sat on a cloud in in the sky i don't know if you saw that one and, and I, I it did actually blow me away because it unless you looked very very closely at certain aspects of it and of course the fact that it's a fella sat on a cloud you know <laughs> it, it was it was very convincing the skin tone was really good the shading and the shadows were excellent um there was just little giveaways like when he turned the the page in the book that was a bit of a giveaway the physics of that but you know it, it was so convincing that it was so close to real life um to a point where unless you were really, really looking for some a fault in it, you wouldn't have known. If it was just something uploaded to a YouTube short, for example, you know, you, you could have thought it was a real video. Yeah. Actual ab- real, real content, you know. Ab- absolutely. I mean, it is a, a night and day change. I mean, I've played with some of the earlier tools and, you know, it's it's a bit like watching a sort of 1930s Mickey Mouse cartoon yeah. with its yeah. sort of very basic black and white lion animation. Um, and as you mentioned... It's very realistic, but it isn't perfect. perfect. There are yeah. things that you can find if you look hard enough. I think in the the Japanese street example, for example, um, the traffic on the road in the left-hand side of the picture is out of proportion with the people mm. who are walking. Now, because it's in the distance, you don't notice it initially, but there's no way that that perspective um, could be achieved in an, yeah. in an actual shot. But as you said, you know, you can see the the potential 
for this kind of model and the, the kind of sea change that it's likely to bring in the, the way that we uh, create content. And even though there's no relate, release date um, given for the model, there's no indication of what kind of volume of traffic it can handle, because obviously that's going to be really intensive to, to produce, oh, yes. um, let alone, um, you know, what that kind of compute will actually cost on, you know, a per minute or a per second generation um, basis. The poly- uh, possibilities are absolutely enormous. I mean, imagine, you know, you'd be able to do your proof of concepts for TV and films and games instead of doing, uh, you know, sort of text-based elevated pitches. You can yeah. go into a meeting, these things will come alive. Instant infographic videos for social media or, as you mentioned, you know, creating um, perhaps false narratives, but, you know, um, especially as this kind of technology grows and the the video times get longer and the prompts that the machine can handle get more detailed. I mean, this is a really exciting development. It is indeed. And hold that thought because uh, we need to take a short break. We'll be right back after these messages here on Matt's Plane on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Balanced Frank Medium, BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, the business station. Welcome back to Max Plain. Um, okay, so before the break, we were talking about advances in AI-generated text and video. Um, but I wanted to follow that up with some of the news from Google. Haven't they announced a more video-intensive model as well recently? Yeah, but it's less focused on creation. It's more focused on the analytics. So, um, yeah, as you might have experienced when uploading a large document to the various LLMs, you know, they quickly lose interest and essentially tell you to uh, go and read it yourself. It's like, can you analyze this for me? No, it's too long. We suggest that you go and read it. Um, Now, you may have heard people talking about LLMs in terms of tokens. Um, Now, obviously, to most people, that doesn't make an awful lot of sense because, you know, we're not computer programs. We don't care. Um, Tokens are are parts, are the parts of your prompt that the AI breaks down and processes. So when you type text in, it divides it up into chunks, and each one of those chunks is a token. So in the case of um, ChatGPT's current, uh, I think it's ChatGPT4, isn't it, at the moment? Yeah, it is, yeah. Uh, it, it can input up to 129,000 tokens, but it only outputs around 8,000. Now, these limits like change frequently, so forgive me if the, the information I've got is a little bit out of date. Um, but that's one of the reasons you get that uh, disappointing result of, you know, you'll put in reams and reams of text and ask it to summarize something, and it does it all in about 300 words, and you're like, yeah. really? <laughs> that's um, not what I asked for. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh, Google DeepMind's latest Gemini model, um, and like a, a, a a lot of the the last story as well. This is also from MIT Technology Review. So Google's latest Gemini model is the 1.5 Pro. Um, as standard, it handles inputs of 129,000 tokens, so about the same as GPT-4 Turbo. 
but it can take up to uh, a million tokens, although they only make that available to uh, a select group of their customers. Mm. Um, that means that it could easily digest uh, George Martin's A Game of Thrones and A Clash of Kings at the same time, uh, or an hour of video or 11 hours of audio in uh, a single uh, kind of uh, search prompt. But but this is, issue is really about what you use it for, right? And what use is that? Well, imagine... Well, I mean, you could be a really big George Martin fan for, for starters. Um, but no, I mean, imagine you're a company and you're looking for uh, a specific piece of data in a really huge archive. So mm. this is a way to sort of quickly narrow down and find information. So uh, in Google's example, they uploaded a 403-page transcript of the Apollo moon landing. Uh, they showed the model uh, a, a hand-drawn sketch of a boot, and they asked it um, to match that sketch to the moment in the transcript it oh. represented. Yeah. Um, so it came back with the answer. This is the moment that Neil Armstrong landed on the moon. Uh, he said, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Um, so pretty impressive. Um, yeah. in, in another task, they asked the machine to watch an old Buston, uh, Buster Keaton silent movie uh, that was about 45 minutes long. And they asked it to identify uh, a piece of information written on a, a piece of paper that was removed from a character's pocket during the film. They didn't specify where in the film, or as far as I know, which character uh, had the piece of paper in their pocket. And it took the model less than a minute to correctly identify the place in the movie and then come back with what was written on the no. piece of paper. So in terms of finding information, that is absolutely incredible. I mean, imagine being able to trawl through a huge archive um, with that level of specificity, you know, pulling a specific quote out of chunks of data from a report. Um, you know, it's it's a bit more boring than the the example of Sora from OpenAI, mm. but, you know, no less impressive. Pub quizzes are never going to be the same again. Um, oh, ab absolutely. I mean, you could... You're no longer you going know, out to Google something. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it makes, it makes you know, trivial pursuits completely irrelevant. Not that it trivial. hasn't been irrelevant for the, the last 20 years, ah. but, you know. All right. We, we don't usually delve too deeply into the hows, I guess, of this kind of technology. But does a task like that, you know, examining these much, much larger chunks of information require the model to approach it, I guess, in a different way? Yeah. So, you know, as as you said, we don't usually go too deeply into the, the hows of things uh, working on on this show but we mm. do occasionally like for example when we've talked in the past about uh, the way some games generate environments and they just generate that part of the world that you currently that you currently occupy which is right. a way of you know saving saving space um on the processes and in the cloud and all that kind of thing mm. so mm. um google employed uh, a technique here called a uh, mixture of experts learning it's not something that's unique um other firms use it too uh, according to uh tech review open ai is rumored to employ mixture of experts learning for chat gpt 
though they don't explicitly say that. Um, the way it works is to divide the neural network into chunks. And as I was saying with the example of games, it activates the part of that network that it needs for the specific task, which is actually quite similar to the, the way that human brains work. Now, obviously, from Google, um, these were demos. Um, so they're kind of cherry-picked examples. So they may not be um, great examples of how it might respond in real life. And of course, we don't know how much the inputs have been tweaked to allow the model to respond efficiently. Mm. But, you know, both in terms of inputs and outputs, we do seem to be making a, a lot of headway uh, this year in 2024 with um, AI and video yeah. content, whether it's analyzing it or whether it's actually creating it. Now, here in my show notes, I've got dragonfire laser and frogs that change color. Well, um, yeah, because I, was... I don't have much information about this. Tell me about no, it. No, um, because uh, I'm... I'm very poor at my job and I forgot to write you a proper question. Uh, so I was going to uh, do a story about a laser weapon built for the British military called Dragonfire, uh, which successfully shot down an aerial drone in tests last month. So you were excited enough about a laser being yeah. zapped at a locust brain. This is a laser that's actually being used to, you know, blow things out of the sky. Um, but you know, it's a bit too depressing even for me to talk about weapons in the current sort of geopolitical yeah, climate yeah. so you can google that dragonfire if you want to to know more but yeah i will uh go with the story about frogs so um, here we go then Ribbit. yeah so exactly we know that up until um the uh, russian invasion of ukraine at least the area around the chernobyl plant in ukraine had become something of a wildlife preserve mm -hmm. um we've covered that on the show before uh the bounce back of populations of large mammals like bears and wolves and wildcats uh loads of snakes and birds and small mammals which all seem to be adapting to the raised levels of uh, radiation with populations that were blossoming in uh, the absence of, you know, a human presence in the area. So we're talking about opportunities to see evolution at work. Yeah, to see how these species are, you know, mutating or changing. Uh, according to a recent report in IFL Science, one of the fastest species to evolve was the eastern tree frog. Now, normally these tree frogs have uh, a really vivid bright green color. But back in 2016, I think, a group of wildlife researchers working in the exclusion zone found a number of these tree frogs who had black rather than green skin. Uh -oh. So over the next three years, they collected, you know, specimens from ponds at various locations mm -hmm. inside and just around the exclusion zone. And they found that the frogs inside the exclusion zone had much darker skin. In fact, the closer to uh, the, the kind of um, explosion epicenter. site. The epicenter, yeah, the yeah. darker the skin of the frogs. And tests showed that they possessed much higher concentrations of Melanin, you know, the, huh. the chemical that helps to produce darker skin and hair. Yeah. And it turns out that this is likely also providing more protection against ionizing radiation. Uh, as I said, the, the population with the darkest skin were the ones in the areas closest to, as you said, the epicenter. Mm. And the color in the skin 
seems to relate to those levels of ionizing radiation at that moment of the explosion. It didn't relate to current radiation levels. So the researchers hypothesized, yeah, that the frogs with the lowest levels of melanin would have quickly died off following, huh. you know, the, the yeah. you know, everything, the radiation coming out. But those with higher melanin levels would have been more likely to survive and to be able to breed. So they passed the genetic trait for darker skin, you know, containing more melanin, onto the next generation and so on, which means that these traits have developed in only 40 years across about sort of 10 to 15 generations of the frogs. And that's incredibly fast for for evolution. It's a bit like seeing the future unfold kind of on fast forward, you know, a bit like the movie Click. Wait, you had to go and ruin evolution with an Adam Sandler reference. Well, I'm sure there are aliens who base their entire knowledge of uh, humanity on his canon of work. You know, when they finally (laughs) arrive here, they'll be... They'll be dressed like Scuba Steve and expect us to only retain information for 24 hours. They may also insist on covering Henry Winkler in bees. Um, but yeah, let's let's end with something different. We started with locusts, so let's end with music. Mm. Uh, new research from the University of Barcelona suggests that electronic music is actually good for you. Um, now, Electronic music in all its various and distinguished forms is often maligned by people for not being real music. You know, Mm -hmm. you often hear comments like, it's just noise, it's just repetitive beats, it's made on computers, so it doesn't count. I mean, everything's made on computers now. Music's recorded, mastered, and released digitally. It doesn't matter if you use an an analog instrument, it's all digital in the end. Uh, And it has been for decades, but somehow... This snobbery about electronic music persists, Um, but it seems that listening to electronic music can alter our state of consciousness, Um, which isn't really that surprising. As the New Scientist piece that I read this in points out, music has been used for millennia to induce trance states. It's used to accompany rituals and help people enter new states of consciousness. I mean, if it's something that's been known throughout history, why are we only examining it now? Well, it's always nice to understand why things are. We understand what they do. We don't necessarily understand why they do them. So the Barcelona team suspected that uh, a phenomenon known as entrainment might be behind music's ability to affect and influence us. So entrainment happens when there's a synchronization between rhythmic stimuli, in this case electronic music, Mm. and the neurons that are firing in your brain. They tested a group of volunteers aged between 18 and 22 years old who are unlikely to have prejudices against electronic music and made them listen to six 60-second excerpts of music at different tempos. Uh, I think the tempos were roughly 99 BPM, 135 BPM, and 171 BPM. Now, 171 is obviously really fast. Um, 99 BPM to 135 BPM. That's typically what you'd see in music in a in a club or a bar yeah. if you you went out. Um, 99 BPM is kind of mellow. 135 is already getting 
pretty fast. So the volunteers, uh, the test subjects, their brainwaves were recorded as they listened to the excerpts. Afterwards, they were asked to fill out a questionnaire about how the music made them feel, um, ideas like unity and disembodiment. And then they were given a series of cognitive tasks that measured their focus and reaction times following each excerpt at the different tempos. I'm interested because I imagine the results that they got from 171 BPM were, were pretty manic, right? I mean, I'd imagine so, but they don't sort of explicitly mention it. Um, I guess that's something I, I could look for. But they did find that um, entrainment occurred at all three of the tempos, uh, that the test subject's brain activity fell in line with the tempo of the music. Their neurons fired in synchronicity with the tempo of the music. Um, but they found that people felt the greatest sense of you know unity, togetherness at... Mm. 99 BPM, um, when they looked at the other sort of tempo ranges, there were more variations between the reactions. Mm. Um, now, they didn't report a sense of disembodiment. They didn't report a change in, in focus um, at those different tempos, but there was sort of more a variation in the way they kind of responded to tasks at different tempos. So obviously there's still a lot more research to be done here. Um, for example, the researchers think that factors ranging from uh, musical training or, or knowledge uh, of the test subjects to personality traits, their cognitive ability, all of these things could influence the results. Mm. So they want to do more research to try and unpack that a little bit too. Now, in case you're wondering what uh, what use any of this is, um, strangely, there, there are a number of medical uses. So again, this isn't one of those things where, you know, someone's taken a bit of money and they've done a bit of research that everyone goes, oh, what's the point of this? Um, Why are you it doing could, that? Yeah, it could actually have genuine medical applications. Um, one of the most striking is to use that ability to find uh, neurons not find neutrons, that would be a bit dangerous, um, to find uh, neurons in uh, people experiencing coma or vegetative states. So you could actually, you know, see the brain activity um, reflected there. Uh, you could also use music at certain tempos to facilitate recovery from medical procedures. Mm. Um, and on a, a sort of more mundane basis, on a more day-to-day -day use, using music to, to manage stress rather than using medication or, or as part of a, a, a sort of therapy program. Mm, mm. You know, most of us have one of those calming or relaxing playlists on our devices, uh, you know, that we turn to when we're feeling a bit sort of strung out. I mean, what do you play or listen to when you're uh, feeling the, the weight of the world on your shoulders? Um Oddly enough, I have uh, the, the sound generators. I use white noise, pink noise, and brown noise, uh, depending on what state I'm in and, and how caffeinated I am. Gosh, those things drive me absolutely insane. If somebody <laughs> somebody broadcasts, you know, just white noise, pink noise at me, I'm genuinely livid. Um, but I, I think it's something like that. It depends on what volume you listen to it at. Absolutely. I mean, and, and obviously we're just talking about anecdotal responses. We're not talking yeah, about anything yeah. um, heavy. I mean, for me over the last year, um, it's been uh, the reprise album by Moby, which blends uh, a classical orchestra with electronic elements. I can and see how that would help. Yeah. yeah. But a lot of those songs, because I, I, I did a test 
talked uh, before we came on air, a lot of those songs run at about 99 BPM. Right. Um, historically, my go-to stress album has been uh, something called Furious Angels by Rob Dugan. Um, most people know him better as the, the bloke who made the Matrix theme music, that, that yeah. song Club to Death. Um, but again, this is an album that blends strings and orchestral elements with electronic music and again at around 99 BPM. So I know that's only anecdotal, but, you know, don't scoff at electronic music. Try it out for your peace of mind. Thank you very much for that, Matt. Fascinating as ever. Thank you. And of course, uh, a, a great uh, advertisement for Reprise by Moby. There you go. <laughs> Folks, if you missed any part of this conversation, don't forget you can download it where you normally get it from. Listen back to it via our website or via the BFM app. That's available on the Apple App Store or Google Play. You can follow Matt all around the ether on the internet and wherever you want to find him. He's on X at Culture Matt. He's on uh, Instagram at Culture Pop or Culture Matt. His website is culturepop.com. Uh, and I'm sure he's in other places. He's everywhere. He's, he's everywhere and nowhere. I've got a presence everywhere and I don't look at any of them. I'm terrible. There you go. This has been Matt Splained here on BFM 89.9, the business station. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.